I want to welcome everybody to um, Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, we're going to start in a few minutes. I just wanted to remind some people of who we have, uh, remind you of who we have coming up in the next few months and some other events that we have uh, coming up. Uh, next month, which will be March uh, 6th, will be William Breitbart, who's the Chief of Psychiatry at Memorial Sloan Kettering and one of the leading palliative care uh, specialists in the country, and he's going to be doing Grand Rounds for us. Um, in April, we'll be having Calm Toybean, uh, the author uh, will be here, and um, in May we have uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, the philosopher from Princeton. Uh, on March 2nd, we have a presentation of Mycoma Dreams, Fred Hirsch's Mycoma Dreams at the Miller Theater, and there are some cards on the table back there, um, and I would encourage everybody to, uh, to try to attend. Uh, with that, I'm going to introduce our introducer, he is our uh, writer in residence here in the program of narrative medicine, and uh, my personal spiritual advisor, Chris Adrian. Uh, hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, I hope you'll forgive me as I flutter about a little, because I'm going to use a mix of appropriated, sanctioned, and unsanctioned speech introduce Louise. Louise Aronson is a doctor and a writer, or maybe a writer and a doctor. Louise the doctor, Louis, Dr. Louise Aronson is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she cares for frail or older adults and directs the Northern California Geriatrics Education Center and the UCSF Pathways to Discovery program. A geriatrician, Louise received a medical degree from Harvard Medical School and completed a residency in internal medicine, a clinician educator fellowship, and a geriatrics fellowship at UCSF. She also serves as associate editor for JAMA Care of the Aging Patient Series and director of public medical communication for the program for the aging century. Her clinical practice is through the House Calls program for diverse, vulnerable, homebound older patients and the Acute Care for Elders Unit at San Francisco General Hospital. Louise's research and scholarship focus on geriatrics education, reflective learning, and public medical, public medical communication. She's particularly interested in training current and future health, professional, health professionals to provide optimal care to older adults, creating compassionate, inquisitive physicians committed to lifelong learning and improving health and medicine and the use of writing to harness the expertise and unique experiences of clinicians and medical scientists in service of health and health care. A former teaching scholar, geriatrics faculty scholar, and medical education research fellow, Louise has received the California Home Care Physician of the Year Award, a Geriatric Academic Career Award, and the Cook Award for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. She's also received UCSF Mentorship and Teaching Awards, the Lieberman Scholar Award, and the AOA Edward D. Harris Professionalism Award. Louise, the writer. Louise holds an MFA from the Warren Wilson Program for Writers. She has won the Sonora Review Prize, the New Millennium Short Fiction Award, three Pushcart nominations, and has been awarded UCross, Ragdale, and Hedgebrook Foundation residencies. Her fiction has appeared in both literary and medical journals, including the Bellevue Literary Review, Northwest Review, Sonora Review, Seattle Review, 14 Hills, the Literary Review, Annals of Internal Medicine, and the Journal of, and the Journal of General Internal Medicine, among other publications. 
The History of the Present Illness is her first book. So that's the official speech, which I, I stole, I stole um, from Louise's website. Um, so I think what I'd like to propose is that, um, it's not just that Louise is a writer and a physician, but that there's something that she, in her person, gets right about that combination that I don't think, that I'm not sure anybody else in the country really gets right. And this book was, I suspected this on first meeting her, but when I read her book, I, I, I found that I knew it to be true. So what I'd like to offer you very quickly, because I don't um, want to take Louise's steal away in addition to stealing that biography, steal her, her time reading, um, is uh, a very quick portrait of this book, which to me is, the, is this person, in a sense. Uh, so I'm gonna try to offer you a quick portrait in first lines, um, because I, 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 th I think I know that you're gonna hear the last story in this book, and there's so much that comes before it, as much as I like the last story that I'd like to give you a taste of it and, and, and try to make you understand what I, what I was trying to say when, um, when Louise's publisher asked me to try to say what I meant in one paragraph and make sense for once um, uh, about the book. So I'll read you that. Um, I'll read you some of these first lines and then I'll have one more thing to say and then I'll, I'll stop this. In a history of the present illness, Louise Aronson invites us with very little fanfare, but with a profound sense of truth to bear witness to what it really means to be, a, to be a flawed, sick human being in a flawed, sick world. These stories are about medicine exactly in the way that medicine is about life. Here, hospitals contain whole worlds, and the emotional and physical gestures of the urge to heal contain the whole fruitful and fruitless work of human connection, um, and let me try to show you briefly what I what I mean by that. Um, one, she lies in bed the way a letter lies in its envelope. Two, the water dreams began the summer before third grade. Three, in many ways. This is me not being able to read my own handwriting. Um, in many ways, Robert's arrest was liberating. Um, five, I'd been accepted everywhere. Seven, she was born in the Amenabad district of Bombay province, India in 1947, two weeks after partition, 13 days after independence, the second of six children of a petty bureaucrat and a housewife with repressed artistic ambitions that seeped out in silent tears and storms of uncontrolled hilarity. Nine, the boy kept hold of the match until he could feel the flames on his fingertips. Eleven, dear doctors, say pristine and D. Benedito. Thirteen, for weeks he'd been planning. Fifteen, Hattie Robinson was a jazz singer in the 1930s the only female black labor leader in Northern California in the 50s, and a regular in the letters to the editor section of the San Francisco Chronicle for decades. 16, so much of medicine is stories. So I'm offering that to you as evidence to what I think um, Louise has actually done that's so special, which I think that she's figured out a secret. Um, that she's articulated something that has eluded 
most of the people I know who try to talk about medicine and life in a sense. Um, and that is that it feels to me like sometimes we're, when we try and talk about this stuff, we're reduced to charades in a sense. Sometimes they're academic charades, sometimes they're intellectual charades, sometimes they're creative charades, um, but they're grunts and sighs and the occasional very quiet little groan uh, trying to express this thing, which is, I think, that in medicine, that in the hospital and in medicine, we're overwhelmed by, overwhelmed by this fact that this, what we're dealing with is, is it. Uh, that it really is life that we're caught up in in the course of our work and our practice and our experience. Um, and it sounds like this shouldn't be so hard to capture, but it, I don't know, read the book, I guess, is what I have to, to say to, in, in answer to that, because uh, for me, I understood just how hard it was to capture when I saw somebody actually do it. Um, this sense that our life, the patient's life, the lives of our colleagues, the shared life that we all make together, this thing that we're caught up in here that looks so much like what has been very sensibly called in the past drama, this thing that we theorize against, this overwhelming dramatic presence, these facts of all these people connected to us, we try to contain it or reckon with it, whether creatively or intellectually. And Louise is one of these very few people, this end is possibly an end of one, who is brave enough to give it the sober, heartbreaking celebration it really deserves. And for that, I think that we're lucky to have her as a physician and as a writer and as our guest. Please join me in welcoming Louise. Thank you, Chris. I actually feel like now I have to be careful crossing streets because that would be a good note to die on. <laughs> That's about the nicest introduction I can imagine. Um, so thank you. Um, I think we didn't fully introduce you, so people may not know a couple things about Chris. So Chris Adrian is a physician. He also has a divinity degree, and he was one of the New Yorker's top 20 writers under 40 a couple of years ago. Um, and what you may not know, but might have gotten some sense of from that introduction is his warmth and generosity. So I hardly knew him, and I think his generosity to me uh, in terms of helping with agents and giving a blurb for the book and just always being nice and available when he hardly knew me uh, is pretty special. So thank you very much. I'm also really glad to be here because part of how this happened was that I was at UCSF and then I worked in the community for the better part of a decade and I decided to go back to academics in 2006 and before I did that I came here and I did Rita Sharon's uh, narrative medicine sort of short course over four days. And it occurred to me that you could put these things together and that some people actually got paid to do so, which seemed like the coolest thing ever. Uh, so it really inspired me. So I feel like I owe Columbia a debt of gratitude. So it's particularly nice to be here today. So I'm indeed gonna speak about this book. Uh, and I'm going to read little parts from a few different stories to give you a sense for the range. Uh, Chris and I not having coordinated, but uh, had the same impulse. Because one of the things I wanted to do here was really represent all of us, 
so people of all ages and all backgrounds and all sorts of different relationships to medicine, although I will admit it is less interprofessional than you would think given that that's so much of what I do, but for some reason it ended up being very doctor focused, so I apologize for those who aren't doctors. Uh, but really, you know, genders, ages, everything. So that by telling individual stories of real people, it's fiction, but to me it's entirely real. We paint a portrait of life and health in America today that is a little different from what you get from all the newspaper stories and all of the arguments over healthcare reform and everything else. And some of that is really important. We have to think of the finances and we have to think of safety and some of the theories. But I think if we lose sight of the real human beings and the ways in which people suffer and are courageous, then we're really in trouble. So I wanted to write this book to sort of capture that other lens. And I'm going to start, uh, I'm deciding whether I should start with what I was going to start with because it is actually a numerical list. And I was going to do that because doctors like numerical lists. <laughs> um, and then Chris did a numerical list, but he's a doctor, so I think my theory holds. Um, so I'm going to read the entirety of one uh, shortish story, and then I'm going to read a couple of pieces of others. I'm going to do two that are a little more patient-focused and two that are a little more doctor-focused. And the last one I'm going to do is one that uh, speaks sort of to the whole book and to this enterprise of narrative medicine. But we'll start with this one. It's called 25 Things I Know About My Husband's Mother. And you've heard the beginning. One. She was born in the Ahmedabad district of Bombay Province, India in 1947, two weeks after partition, 13 days after independence, the second of six children of a petty bureaucrat and a housewife with repressed artistic ambitions that seeped out in silent tears and storms of uncontrolled hilarity. Two, by age 10 her hair reached below her buttocks. She never cut it. Three, she did well in school and hoped to go to college. Her father said no. Four, at 17 she had her first bout of depression, or so we assume. All we really know is that she stayed in bed for a year and neither the local healers nor the specialists her father took her to see in Bombay offered a plausible diagnosis or effective treatment. Five, during that year she read all of Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, and D.H. Lawrence twice. Six, to everyone's surprise she married well the youngest son from a good family, a doctor with a growing practice in Springfield, Illinois, an aloofness reminiscent of Mr. Darcy, and a skin condition that sometimes stained his shirt and trousers. The year was 1967. They were the only Gujarati in central Illinois. Seven, her husband worked long hours and expected her to manage everything else. He didn't love her, and she knew it. Eight, she had one son, then five miscarriages. After the first four, she took root on their living room couch. Her husband prescribed antidepressants, which she flushed down the toilet. Life's disappointment, she explained to her boy, one cannot be treating with pills. Of that time, her son recalls a heavyset woman hired by his father to keep house, pale, bland foods, and relatively happy afternoons spent combing the tangles from his mother's hair as she began to recover. Nine. After the fifth miscarriage, she moved into the guest room and enrolled in classes at the university. Three years later, she graduated with honors and a double major in English literature and business administration. 10. That summer, her husband announced that he was relocating to Kentucky with his nurse, 
who, though neither especially young nor particularly pretty, was five months pregnant with his child and belonged to a pink-skinned but surprisingly open-minded extended family outside Louisville. 11. After her husband's departure, she spent a week in the hammock on the screen back porch in what turned out to be her last such sojourn. Her son shopped and cooked and cleaned until one afternoon he returned from the store to find his mother trying on business suits. Before that day, he'd never seen her in anything but a sari. 12. For the next 12 years, she worked at the university from which she'd graduated, first as the administrative assistant to the chairman of the English department, then as the dean's special assistant, and finally as the registrar of the College of Arts and Sciences. 13. When her son was a sophomore in college, her ex-husband collapsed in the smoking lounge at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Attempts at resuscitation were unsuccessful. At the time of his death, he had four children. His estate went to the youngest three. 14. Her husband was the only man she ever slept with. Love, she told her son, especially romantic love, is an invention meant to distract the lower classes by compelling them to strive for the unimportant and unsustainable. 15. When her son inquired how she could feel as she did about love on the one hand and study romantic literature on the other, she said, her accent thickening as it always did when she was annoyed, you are too much focusing on logic and science. 16. When, several years later, her son told her he'd been accepted to the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine, she said, I suppose you must learn for yourself that form is not always content's container. He had no idea what she was talking about. 17. She was one semester short of her PhD in 19th century British literature when she was diagnosed with widely metastatic cancer. Her son flew home from San Francisco where he was midway through his fourth and final year of medical school. Scans and biopsies revealed an aggressive primitive tumor of unclear origin for which there were no good treatment options. Go back to school, she commanded her son. There is nothing to be done here. 18. Upon hearing her fate, she took up walking. Before and after work and all day on weekends, she crisscrossed the small city and the university campus, sometimes venturing so far as the surrounding farms and fields, always in pain. When she became too weak to walk, her son took a leave of absence and moved home to care for her. 19. People he'd never heard of sent flowers, books, and a remarkable array of foods. The breads and curries of his childhood arrived from small towns in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana, while neighbors and co-workers dropped off such exotic dishes as fried chicken with bacon stuffing, mashed sweet potatoes with marshmallows, and jello molds with canned pineapple. The less his mother ate, the hungrier he became, until one morning he could barely button his jeans. 20. She died 16 days later. 21. Her son sat with the body, reviewing his every memory of his mother, and in the end concluded he had never seen her happy, only less sad. 22. In her top dresser drawer, he found plane tickets to India in her name and his for the 10-day break between his medical school graduation and internship, and also a stack of aerograms to which were stapled photographs of young women, the ones on the top gazing right at the camera, the bottom ones with downcast eyes and demure expressions. 23. If she hadn't died that April, her son might not have married me, a fellow Indian who has never been to India, a modern girl who's both a doctor like his father and a romantic like his mother, and so sometimes kisses her patients and admits that she loves them. 24. Her only child became a radiologist. He spends his time scrutinizing and analyzing those parts of people that remain invisible to the rest of us. To this day, he claims strictly intellectual origins for his professional interests.
25. She never met her grandchildren, though the youngest, a girl, looks just like her. Whenever that child sleeps in, her son holds his breath. And when she laughs, he closes his eyes as a once blind man might upon waking to the excruciating beauty of an ordinary sunlit morning. So that's one story. Um, and I thought I'd read at least one I could get us all the way through to prove that they do end. Um, also to show one of the things I did a little bit in the book, which is uh, there are some stories that are borrowed forms. So this is a list. There's another one that's a series of photographs. And I didn't pick them arbitrarily. The list is because doctors like lists. We like to make lists so we can check things off the lists. And sometimes we put things on the list that we've already done so we can check them off and feel like life is under control when it's not under control. Uh, so there's another one that is photographs because I think the way we interact with patients is often we see a photograph when really a life story is much more of a film and we make all kinds of assumptions. Uh, and sometimes we have a series of photographs and that's more helpful. Uh, there's also one that is a fake DSM-5 diagnosis, and it took me so long to write the book that now the DSM-5 is coming out, so it's kind of perfect. Uh, but most are standard narratives. So to show um, a little bit more of the range, I'm going to read the beginning of one of the stories. I uh, made big graphs of things to try and represent who we are, so I had, I had gender and neighborhood and medical specialties and ethnicities and different sorts of problems, and so this is one of the ones that has to do with children, uh, even though I'm a geriatrician. I feel that we're all part and parcel of, of the same situation in American healthcare. It's called An American Problem. The water dreams began the summer before third grade. In the dreams, Bhopal ran through hot rain and crowds of muddy, naked legs and blurred, grown-up faces, or tumbled like garbage in the gutter runoff that coursed down Eddy Street outside her family's apartment after big storms. Eventually, the cold and wet got so real, she woke up. Until the water dreamed, she thought she'd forgotten the trip across Cambodia and her mother's stomach and the refugee camp where she'd learned to crawl and talk and play. The first time it happened, Bhopal removed her nightshirt and underpants and curled herself up on the top half of the mattress, hoping the wet would be dry by morning. It wasn't, but she made the bed anyway, and then she forgot all about the stain until her sister pulled back the covers that night. Neary paused and sniffed, then dragged their mother into the room by her arm and pointed. Bopa's mother covered the wet sheet quickly and without comment while her father sat in the other room in front of the television, picking his teeth with the long, very long nail of his left fifth finger. Ban, her mother said, lowering her voice. It doesn't work and Bhopal promised never to do it again. The next morning her bed was dry, but the following night the water dreams returned. They came again two nights later and three nights after that, until by mid-July they were nightly occurrences and Neary moved onto the mattress across the room to sleep with their two little brothers. At first Bhopal's mother took the wet sheets to the laundromat on Turk Street, finding money for the machines in places that made Bopa and Neary laugh. Behind the big can of rice under the kitchen sink, in a plastic bag floating inside the toilet's tall back, in the stomach of their baby brother's single toy, a little red monkey with a long curly tail. You must stop, Bopa's mother whispered one morning at the end of the month, dropping the soiled linens into the bathtub and turning on the hot water. Before shutting the bathroom door, she glanced over to where Bopa's father lay snoring on the couch, one crema cinched around his waist like a skirt, and another thrown over his eyes. In early August, a moist summer fog hung over the city, retreating to the coast for only a few hours at midday. 
As a result, Bopas sheets and nightshirt thrown over the fire escape railing each morning didn't always dry by bedtime. For three nights in a row, she climbed into a damp bed in the evening and out of a wet one the next day. On the fourth night, she dreamed she fell into a bucket of boiling water and couldn't get out. She woke screaming, kicking the covers away. Her mother came running and turned on the light to reveal an angry red rash from Bopa's waist to the middle of her thighs. There were tears that night, her mother's, not Bopa's. Bopa never cried, and from her father, lots of yelling. His face turned the dark purple of grape juice, and he used his hands for emphasis, waving them wildly and occasionally aiming his tobacco-stained fingertips at Bopa's face. While he shouted about bad behavior and wasted money and letting the family down, she compared his bare feet, so broad and flat and pale, with her own tiny round toes and high round arches. She stood with her legs apart because the air felt good on the burn beneath her nightshirt. Suddenly, Bopa felt a tight, pinching pain in the upper parts of her arms and the floor pulled away from her feet. Her father lifted her until their faces were nearly level. Pay attention, he yelled, his mouth leaking the familiar sour smell of old curry and ashtray bottoms and whiskey. Bopa held her breath until she got a funny feeling in her head that made her eyes want to close. Across the room, her mother repeated a single word like an incantation. At first, Bopa couldn't make out what she was saying, and then she recognized it was a name, Vanak. Her father must have heard it too. Without warning, he let go, and she fell to her knees. For a second, the apartment was perfectly quiet. Then her father grabbed his coat and left, slamming the door behind him. Immediately, the baby wailed, and soon enough, the others joined him. Bopa, felt, Bopa too felt something hot and hard in her throat, like a small animal trying to get out, but she swallowed again and again until she made it go away. Later she asked about Banak. Her mother said he was a cousin who'd been arrested in Rhode Island after treating his son's backache with cupping and coining. A teacher had seen the large round bruises and long red lines under the boy's shirt and called the police. Banak had spent nine months in prison, and when he came out, no one would give him a job. In America, her mother explained, a man could discipline his wife, but he must never leave marks on his children. So that story continues, but that's just the first two sections. Um, and really trying to get to the point of view of, of different sorts of people. Um, so I'm going to jump from patient point of view, uh, although there are, there are others, to a doctor point of view. Uh, and this one I like for a variety of reasons. It's a neurologist who's in practice. And I think we hear a lot about the crisis in primary care lately, and we don't always talk about some of the reasons for it, how people who mean really well and work really hard uh, can find it almost impossible to survive some of the demands, mentally, physically, emotionally. Uh, so this is a story in which this neurologist is in jail. He's been arrested for maybe killing someone. And he's in jail and he's speaking to a psychiatrist through parts of it, and you learn his story and the patient's story. But the part I'm gonna read is an, is an excerpt from the middle, which is his last appointment with this patient, and then one other paragraph, which I think typifies a day in clinic for a certain number of people, or at least some of the time, and hopefully explains why, despite really good intentions, people leave uh, doing this important work. The day Consuela Alvarez's grandson had wheeled her into Robert's office and lifted her onto the exam table, a fluke winter heat wave had begun that would bake the city for three days straight. Outside, people wore shorts and t-shirts. 
In Robert's office downtown, the heater remained on, programmed at some mysterious central location. His staff opened the windows, which helped some, but not enough. Robert sweated in his shirt sleeves. The tiny consuela was burning up. Her grandson wandered, wondered about fever and infection, but Robert didn't think that was the problem. When he told Consuela that he needed to send her to the emergency department, she refused. You won't have to stay long, he argued. It's because of the Parkinson's, because you can't sweat. Her grandson stroked her head. Can't you care for her here, please? Asking the grandson to step outside, he and his nurse undressed Consuela. As always, her fingers and jaw shook in short, rapid rolling movements, but they managed to tape ice packs and cool compresses on her forehead, neck, and wrists and cover her with a single thin sheet that he told the grandson to jiggle periodically, creating a fan. While he saw patients in the other room, the nurse gave him regular reports as Consuela's temperature slowly decreased. Midday, her grandson went out to pick up lunch. In a low voice garbled by saliva and interrupted by coughing fits that left her red-faced and panting, Consuela told Robert that she needed his help. Robert said he certainly would help if he could. Consuela spoke so slowly that several times he had to sing the happy birthday song in his head to keep himself from interrupting. She blinked once every 40 seconds, and it took 12 blinks for her to explain what she wanted. That same day, Paul Massey, kept awake at night by the searing twitches of his right facial nerve, fell asleep at the wheel and drove his car into a stop sign, luckily with only minor injuries, though clearly he needed to be seen that afternoon. Serena Chang was in the ER seizing. Harry Cohen wouldn't discuss how he was managing without the use of the right side of his body. Latrice Jones, only 37, had an MRI that revealed several new white matter lesions. Tom Julevitz needed a hospital bed, a commode, a night nurse, more medications, a shower chair, a wheelchair, a ramp for the front steps, a nightlight, a pill cutter, and a new nervous system. 10 patients had been scheduled for Robert's morning session 12 for that afternoon. These figures did not include the hospital rounds or the urgent add-on of Paul Massey. There were also five messages on his voicemail, 76 emails in his inbox, three piles of reports for review, and as Consuela described her terror at choking repeatedly on her own secretions so she couldn't catch her breath and felt as if she were drowning, a courier waiting for him to sign the divorce papers that had arrived by certified mail from Cape in Wyoming. So it can be hard work, this thing we do, uh, taking care of people. Um, there's a, a line in here um, from one of, one of the medical greats that was, when I was in medical school, up on one of the walls, which is, you know, the secret to caring for the patient is caring for the patient. And the character in that says, that case says, but not caring too much. And I think finding the line of caring um, is a really important task that we might not discuss as often as we could. Um, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here. Uh, I'm a geriatrician, so I take care of the oldest and frailest of patients, and I didn't want this book to be just about that, but there is some of that in here, uh, because I think it's a huge challenge. In geriatric circles, we have discussed, do we need to change our name? I'm pretty sure, Chris can correct me if I'm wrong, but pediatricians do not have this conversation. You know, do we need to not be called pediatricians because if we say the word pediatrics, they're gonna know we're associated with children, right? <laughs> so, so this is ageism and it's a huge problem. And part of what I wanted to, to show in this book also was uh, just what a pleasure it is to take care of people who've lived a whole life. I mean, if you're interested in stories at all, um, 
this is great. And if you're interested in taking care of people and whole people and taking care of them in a way that requires that you know what their values are, what they care about most, what's important, what they're willing to put up with and not, who's in their family, who's at home, what does home look like. If you want the whole person, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty great field. Um, and I touch on that a little bit in this last story, although the young narrator is tending more towards palliative care, as you'll see. Uh, this story also in some of the reviews, they've talked about it's the final story, and they've talked about then, then I get to the nonfiction part, you know, where, where it's Louise talking and it's her story. So this is not my story, it remains fiction, but it's something called metafiction. So it's fiction talking about fiction, and the narrator in the story talks about learning to write as a doctor and writing stories, partly because I wanted to address that a little more head on. Um, and it's last because I wanted you to live through the stories with the characters first. Um, but I'll give you a little sampling because it's narrative medicine grand rounds and I can't imagine a better venue for this story. So it's called a medical story. So much of medicine is stories or potential stories. For example, the year before I began doing palliative care, I visited an elderly couple in an apartment complex named for Martin Luther King. Rogelio said that was the only good thing about the place. Beer bottles and cigarette butts ornamented the sidewalk. Urine and streaks of barely clotted blood garnished the walls. A woman reeking of dust and sweat reached for my jacket and stumbled, smearing saliva on my sleeve. The guard checked me over, then buzzed me in, showed me where to sign, told me to take the elevator, not the stairs. The elevator wobbled and creaked. On its walls were faded admonitions about garbage disposal and the use of fire escapes printed in English, Spanish, Chinese, Russian, and Tagalog. Rogelio and Karina lived on the fifth floor in the last apartment along a narrow windowless corridor. Someone had obliterated the hallway lights. I turned on my otoscope and held it in front of me to light my way. It helped just enough. By the time I finished my eight years of medical training, the year I met Rogelio and Karina, I had abandoned the Midwestern friends of my childhood, the mountain biking I'd taken up with such enthusiasm upon moving to San Francisco, the ability to sustain a romantic relationship, and any reading that artfully conjured the pain of others or took longer than half an hour to complete. By way of trade, I had acquired expertise in internal medicine, a 20-pound diabetic cat with a fondness for sushi, and a spacious apartment on Russian Hill from which I could walk to Chinatown, North Beach, and Fort Mason. Still unsure of what I wanted for my career, I signed up for a year of locum tenens, filling in for doctors on vacation or family leave, moving from one clinic or hospital to another every few weeks or months, and sometimes juggling more than one job at a time in hopes of paying off my student loans before I turned 40. Very quickly, stories of lives damaged, unnoticed, and discounted accumulated in my imagination. I could neither forget nor make sense of them, so I began taking notes and then signed up for a writing class online in hopes of capturing and better understanding my work and my patients' lives. The class reminded me of the person I'd been before my medical training, a happy, caring person I liked and hoped to become again. But the time I devoted to writing was time not spent reading medicine or making money. I began to wonder what counted as meaningful work and by extension as a meaningful life. I didn't see that those questions linked my writing to medicine as surely as did my subject, each story the tale of a patient or doctor I knew or had heard about. So many medical stories are about death or potential death. From the fifth floor of the Martin Luther King apartments where I occasionally visited them as part of an outreach team for an understaffed neighborhood health center, Rogelio watched helplessly as his wife disappeared. 
He was a tiny man, so frail that once, when I passed him with only a foot of space between us, he wobbled, clutching his walker as if it were the safety bar on a roller coaster. His wife, Karina, sat smiling and mute in a wheelchair, fat and healthy except for her brain, a not-so-vital organ if you have the right husband. Each visit was the same. Rogelio wouldn't discuss any of his many worrisome diagnoses, just his guess about how much longer their luck would last, and he wouldn't consider a nursing home. With a nod at the caregiver, he'd say, I must watch them with her, and I am so lonely. The aide sat beside her chart, engrossed in a soap opera. Karina smiled. When I left, Rogelio screamed, squeezed my arm and whispered, she must die first, promise me. Young and hung up on mistaken if well-intentioned notions of professional integrity, I made no promises. Medical training had done something to my attention span. In high school and college, I had kept journals and turned out five to 15-page essays on a weekly basis. During residency, I had worked 80-hour weeks and thought nothing of it. Having finished my training, I wanted nine hours of sleep a night, weekends off, and another human being with whom to share those large swaths of unstructured time. Though I aspired to write articles that told a moving story, then explained how the world needed to change so that, for example, people like Rogelio and Karina would be better cared for and safer, I couldn't seem to generate more than a paragraph at a time. Worse, more often than not, I produced writing best described as minimalist, sardonic, or self-referential. One of the earliest pieces I wrote was called Guilt, and it was a one-liner. If she spent half as much time working as she did feeling guilty about not working enough, she wouldn't have to feel so guilty. That the night I finished that piece, I invited over a man who'd had a crush on me for years. He was a friend of a friend who'd landed in San Francisco shortly after I did, and bicycle commuted 60 miles a day to and from the Redwood City Children's Video Game startup where he worked as creative director. When he arrived, I went into the kitchen to pour us some wine, and when I returned to the living room, he was holding my story. What's this, he asked. An essay. It's a good start. It's done. <laughs> he sat on the couch, downed half his wine, and read the piece again. I get it, he said finally. It's like one of those witty, paradigmatic, semi-autobiographical 30-page essays reduced to a single sentence. I kissed him. That night we began dating. Doctors, you see, aren't so different from patients. Every day we hope someone will see past our elaborate and very impressive window display to the jumble of expired products weighing down the shelves and choking the aisles of our psyches. This is a classic medical story. It was three in the morning. I was covering the night shift at a small Catholic hospital when I was called to see a patient seven hours dead and zipped into a white plastic pouch brought back up from the morgue. He had been dying for so long, first at home and more recently in our hospital, that no one had bothered to call a doctor when his heart stopped. Legally, he was still alive. The nurses and aides, two Filipinas and a plus-sized Barbadian with a strong, charming accent, wouldn't go into the room. They clustered, nervous and giggling, just outside the door, speaking of spirits and ghosts. The room was all dim lights and long shadows, the body bag glowing as I pulled the long central zipper then parted the plastic edges. I placed my stethoscope on the patient's cold chest and it teetered on his ribs. I thought, as if nurses don't know death, as if the diagnosis couldn't have been made by the tech in the morgue. A little while later, since they were the only other people awake at that hour of the morning, I told the story to the doctors and nurses in the emergency department downstairs. I knew it was disrespectful of the patient, but I couldn't help myself. He was so dead. We had a good laugh, then went back to work. 
Of course, what most doctors call stories aren't really stories at all. They're anecdotes, which my Webster's Dictionary tells me are, quote, usually short narratives of an interesting, amusing, or biographical incident, end quote. Here's an example of one I'd forgotten until I was sent to Chinese hospital for a two-week stint, and it turned out that what they needed was a surgeon, not an internist. As a medical student, I cut off a woman's foot. I was doing my required surgery rotation, and one night, around midnight, I was told to go down to the emergency department to see a woman whose foot hurt. All these years later, I can't remember her exact age, though I remember that she looked decades younger than what it said on the chart. Her foot was gangrenous. It must have been hurting for weeks. Her brother had brought her in and said she'd probably hurt herself gardening. Or maybe that was just how she liked to spend her time. She was unmarried, lived alone in the family home where she'd been born the better part of a century earlier and had never seen a doctor. No childhood vaccinations, no broken bones. She never even catches colds, said her brother. She was overweight, so probably she'd been diabetic for years. I could easily picture her in one of the many similar small houses in Ingleside near the 280 freeway. A well-kept but worn house, everything faded, its contents exactly as they had been when her parents were alive and slowly filled their home with furniture, commemorative plates, and children. Everything left just as it had been when her parents died. A dark, quiet place with pervasive odor of age and dust, of mildew and microwave dinners, and the fresh flowers she sometimes brought in from the garden. This was toward the end of my two months on surgery, so I did the admission without much help. There was no question of what needed to be done. The next morning, the surgery resident offered me the foot. His exact words were, if you want it, it's all yours. I thought, why not? When will I ever get another chance to cut off a foot? Many doctors would call that a story, but it's not. No conflict, no crisis, no resolution. Nor does learning more about me, a key character and potential protagonist, guarantee the transformation of anecdote to story. Case in point, my first day on surgery, as the attending and residents worked for more than six hours to remove and reattach parts of a man's intestine, I marveled that anyone could survive an operation. Their innards exposed to the air for all those hours, cut and rearranged, sewn and stapled like cloth or paper or aluminum siding, and then wake up, groggy to be sure and in some discomfort, but basically fine, better in fact, than prior to the operation. But the second day on the rotation, standing through a few quickie surgeries, one appendix, one gallbladder, one hernia, and then another six-hour intestinal procedure, I felt like Ronald Reagan on his first visit to the Redwoods. Seen one, seen them all. I realized then that I wanted to take care of patients, not parts, wanted conversation and connection, not instrumentation, resection, and redecoration. Though I couldn't have articulated it correctly at the time, what inspired me most in medicine was the opportunity to go beyond everyday exposition to life's trigger problems and rising action, its culminations, turning points, and denouement. In contrast to anecdote, story, at least in the literary sense, offers so much more. Narrative arc, movement, unification of action, irrevocable change, meaning. It seemed that in the process of becoming a doctor, I'd become quite literal, unable to bend fact for the sake of drama or significance. Or perhaps I'd always been that way, and that was why I'd become a doctor in the first place. In any case, having come up short in my attempts at advocacy journalism, I decided to try to exercise my creative muscles by writing fiction, in the hope that it would help me move beyond my own myopic and overly anecdotal point of view to some larger truth with a capital T. To my surprise, most of my earliest stories contain a protagonist 
who could invariably be described as a young female doctor who was always having to adjust to new hospitals and patients and couldn't quite figure out what she wanted to do with her life. Nevertheless, I avoided the first person unless the I was so certifiably crazy that no one could possibly mistake her or me. Most of the time I chose the classical, all-knowing, and thus appropriately doctorly narrator. Physicians, we learn in medical school, should function as objective interpreters of other people's behavior, confidently providing reflections, judgments, compassion, and truths at key moments as the action unfolds. In theory, as in great 18th century novels, this stance made good sense. In real life, unlike in fiction, I sometimes found it hard to manage. This is an old story. Most doctors have one that's more or less the same. I'd been sent to a large group practice near the old Mount Zion Hospital. Two hours into an overbooked clinic of patients I didn't know, Rose Fong walked in off the street with a funny feeling in her chest. The nurse said she didn't look good and put her in a room right away. Rose said she'd never had this squeezing feeling in her heart before and also that she wanted a sandwich. Please, she said to me in precisely articulated, very slightly accented English, I am so hungry. The T waves on her EKG, normally up, tiny upside down U's, looked like tombstones, tall and broad and evil. Tombstones is the actual medical term, not a word I slipped into my story for dramatic effect. As we waited for the ambulance, Rose said, I don't care what kind, ham, tuna, cheese, even peanut butter. Her EKG went up, down, up, down, slithering like a snake, a pattern even more distressing than tombstones. Just a glass of milk, she begged as the paramedics arrived. Then she mentioned nausea, and her EKG became a line, straight as an arrow, and it stayed that way for the next 45 minutes as we tried unsuccessfully to save her. Among us locums docs, the joke went, the good patients died and the bad ones stuck around to torment you. A lie. Both died, at least now and then. What was true was that deaths were easier than primary care, fewer phone calls, no prescriptions. If you were nice locums, a team player, you'd fill out all the appropriate forms before finishing your placement, so all the doc you were recovering for had to do on his or her return was send a note to the family. In other words, no epic account of an impoverished provincial childhood, young love, migration halfway around the world, pursuit of the American dream, invisible illness, sudden death, and small orphan children, just a consultant's card. The night of her death, I told my boyfriend that all I'd been able to think about for the rest of the day was how I wished I'd given Rose a sandwich. Some medical stories never get told in quite the right way. Such stories almost always involve a doctor behaving badly according to certain widely accepted, though rarely articulated, codes of physician conduct. This is the sort of story you tell one way if you're the protagonist, unconsciously, but quite understandably suppressing and internalizing, then forgetting certain details while exaggerating and elaborating others. If, on the other hand, you were a secondary player, such as, hypothetically speaking, of course, a senior doctor who owned a large group practice and did nothing more than peer over shoulders during a prolonged and unsuccessful resuscitation, you are free to tell the story in a completely different way, making modifications for the sake of humor and misplaced sympathy, and most important by far, to discourage future lawsuits against the practice by relatives of the deceased and you are free to do so whether or not such alterations occur at the expense of the facts, such as the poor prognosis associated with tombstones on an EKG, the patient's accented but actually entirely intelligible pronunciation of the names of certain types of sandwiches, 
and a somewhat inexperienced junior colleague's well-meaning but perhaps ill-advised, possibly even lethal, decision to get an EKG before calling 911. Some people believe this means the story has been told. Those same people, while fluent in the language of shame and humiliation, of ass-kicking and ass-covering, lack even the most rudimentary understanding of point of view. Once upon a time, Rogelio and Karina had four children. The oldest died in Nicaragua of what sounded like cancer, but might have been the sort of infectious disease we don't see much in the United States. The third and fourth died in a school bus accident in El Paso. They were nine and 10 at the time. Their only surviving child, a daughter, married a man who moved a lot for work. She lived in Chicago when I met her parents, but soon thereafter moved to Raleigh, Durham, then Orlando. I gathered that there were grandchildren, but also that there wasn't money or time for visits. Sometimes in medicine, entering a story in medias race can be problematic. In those instances, you wonder what you're missing and assume the worst, that frail Rogelio used to cheat on Karina, and his current kindness stemmed from guilt and retribution. That, frustrated by failures at work, the inability to save enough for a down payment on a house, or the death of his sons, he ignored, abused, or disparaged his daughter, who consequently wanted little or nothing to do with him. That the son-in-law's frequent moves stemmed not from a quest for more lucrative work, but from a need to escape the law. That the daughter wanted her mother dead so she could inherit the earrings, necklace, and bracelet bought in better times and worn even now, day and night, over cornflower blue flannel pajamas and a floral house dress. The possible backstories, limitless and nefarious, can make you question a patient, patient's or family member's every plea or explanation and search the subtext of even the most straightforward comments. Such as when Rogelio and Karina's daughter said, you are too kind, in reference to my having gone out of my way to make sure her mother got the right antibiotic for the pneumonia that might otherwise have killed her when what she might have meant was, I wish you hadn't. It's rare but not unheard of for a medical story to start as an anecdote, but because it appears to be about one thing, and really it's about something else entirely, end up one step closer to being an actual and successful story, one with what might almost qualify as an Aristotelian reversal. In that sort of story, you get to the end and it changes everything such as the story I told my increasingly serious boyfriend about Svetlana Kamenetsky, a patient I cared for in the large clinic near Mount Zion, where I ended up working for more than six months, covering first the regular doctor's preterm labor and then her three-month maternity leave. Respecting Russian tradition and the family's well-documented requests in the chart, I didn't mention bone marrow failure to Svetlana. She went for transfusions and never asked why. Words like Chernobyl and mortuary were spoken only furtively in the tiny hallway outside my exam room, whispered over the screeches and whoops of the children running in and out of the waiting area shared with pediatrics next door. One afternoon when I put Svetlana last on my schedule and asked that the entire family be present so we could discuss the few remaining options for treatment, she said never in the Soviet Union did they have a doctor so nice. She said, we are very thank you and the entire family, Svetlana, sunken and swollen, gray and dying, her ancient parents, her husband and brother, even the teenage children, were all smiles. Hearing the story to that boy point, my beloved boyfriend was also all smiles. But then I told him how sometimes at work I felt like a fraud, pulling options and assertions with the bright colors and plasticity of Play-Doh from the empty pockets of my long white coat. Right away, my boyfriend stopped smiling, which was good because boyfriends, like patients, sometimes get confused. Too often they think a nice doctor is a good doctor. 
Too often they notice the affection, but not the brutality, the gratitude, but not the obvious unspoken question. For example, cultural tradition aside, what kind of doctor lies to a dying woman? Not infrequently, medical stories tend towards sentimentality or humor, as if outrage at the injustice of illness and the necessary violence of medical care are downers that are left to novelists and bloggers. That's interesting, said my new fiance on the Saturday morning after the cloudless Friday night atop Twin Peaks, the lights of the city and bridges sparkling below when he dropped to one knee and asked me to marry him. A few hours later, naked, his curly hair wild from the wind on the hilltop and the burrowing of my fingers, he was reading the titles of the books on my writing desk. What is interesting? Your books, they're all about war. It was true, as models for writing and medicine, the war books came closest to achieving what I was after. They had stories of good deeds and bad, but no heroes or villains. They had descriptions of horror and obscenity and crazy things that should never have happened but did, again and again, and so struck me as profoundly and irrevocably true. In other words, they were honest. I wanted to be honest, too. To ensure objectivity and accuracy, doctors' notes avoid the first-person pronoun. Instead, they are written in the style of textbooks, using the dispassionate third person with lots of jargon and a relative paucity of the sort of telling detail that might allow a patient to transcend the page and emerge a fully formed and unique human being in the imagination of the reader. Mostly made up of something called history, which shouldn't be confused with story. The best such notes and quotations, dialogue, if you will, in the actual voice of the patient. These conventions, particularly the avoidance of the subjective and responsible I, may partly explain why, when describing certain emotional events in my writing, I do so by using the second person. But rest assured that whenever I use the word you, I'm not referring to you, the reader, but to myself. This is a common literary usage of the second person, but also I've found a common usage in real life as well. So often when a person says you, they mean me. You're too easily upset, I said to my fiance one night, when he appeared on the verge of tears at the end of one of my patient anecdotes. Then I reminded myself that he worked in a world in which young, healthy, college-age men and women spent their days debating pressing issues such as whether the villain should be a lion or a bear in the latest animated children's video, and I softened my tone. It's my work, you know. Somehow you're gonna have to get used to it. So the story continues, but I think in the interest of time, I'm gonna stop there uh, and maybe open up for questions if people want to comment or respond. this narrative medicine in my teaching um, with students and residents and has it changed my own practice? Uh, well, we have a medical humanities program at UCSF as well. We're a little um, more writing focused and, and less literary analysis focused than you are here, probably because Rita started this one and you know has a PhD in literature and I have a writing degree, so uh, you know, be careful who you work with, I guess. Uh, so we're, we do have story courses where people read stories to understand others because it's a really nice way of doing that. But we have a lot also where they learn to write. 
And this is done somewhat developmentally. So with the residents, we have a program called Writing for Change where we really teach them how to do advocacy pieces, although there's a range of those. So it can be op-eds, it can be the narrative matters, stories in health affairs journal, it can be the essays or narratives at the beginning of the New England Journal, or you know, JAMA has this section called A Piece of My Mind, and it's hands down the most widely read section, uh, and it's narrative. So um, even the people who aren't necessarily doing narrative medicine obviously like it because there aren't enough of us to make it the most read section. Uh, so we have courses for the first and second years where they hear from doctor writers and or read and discuss the readings and sort of learn at a really basic level, not using so much the language of literature because uh, I think sometimes that puts them off and more you start with really simple questions like what did you like or where did they lose your attention? And they're so smart that they can figure out the craft um, if, if you don't sort of scare them with the jargon. And then as they become third years, we have a longitudinal course which allows them to write in response to whatever's going on. We do some of the analysis of different sorts of public medical writing, uh, but then allow them to write and read to each other. And we do those in the way of writing workshops, which is that you write and then you read and you can't preface what you've read because of course if somebody's reading it, they don't have a little button they can press to say, well, I know it says this, but what I meant to say was that. Um, so they have to just read it and then sit quietly while people respond to it. And I think because of the setting, I mean, we, we haven't had anybody traumatized or anything. They're really lovely with each other. And in fact, uh, the data from our first study of this shows that it makes them appreciate their classmates in a way that they hadn't even imagined possible. Uh, because I think often, particularly in third year, everybody's trying to be so brave and contained and doesn't understand that they're all living through the same sort of horrible circumstances. Uh, so we do that in the third year. And then in the fourth year, they can convert one of those, ideally, into a piece that might be submitted for publication. We don't put the pressure on that it has to be submitted, because not everybody might have that aim or range. But if people want to work on revision and understand how revision really helps you hone your thinking and think about audience and venue, then we have them do that. So, so that's a little, little piece of our program.
Oh, that's a good question. So was it something about San Francisco that turned narrative medicine as it is here into public medical writing, which is a bit more what we do there, that we do some narrative medicine? Uh, and I think the answer is partly yes and partly it was me. You know, most of this was uncompensated, so I figured I might as well do what I loved. Um, and people seemed interested, so, so that worked. But I think sometimes, Partly the jargon, you know, medical humanities and narrative medicine have had a little trouble defining themselves, and the words humanity, uh, humanities and narrative can be off-putting to many physicians just on their own. Uh, whereas if you think about products or outcomes, we're, we're very pragmatic and outcome-focused. So if you think about if there's an issue you care about, don't you want to know how to communicate that to other people? And telling them how much more effective story is than data, and ironically sometimes showing them data on how much more effective story is and sometimes telling them stories but sometimes you actually have to use data to convince them. Uh, it also, the culture at UCSF, I think a lot of medical humanities programs have succeeded by doing essential functions that train people to be doctors, so working in the doctoring courses or working in the ethics area. And we actually had really strong ethics and doctrine courses already and a really very strong medical education enterprise. So there wasn't an obvious gap or hole that we could fill, so we had to really do something novel and different over and above what was already there. And I think timing also played, because with blogs and tweets and, and the whole sort of the way we communicate 2.0, more and more people are doing this anyway and to help teach them to do it responsibly and to think about things like who are you talking to, who's your audience, and where are you talking to them. If you're going to write the same patient story and advocate for the same issue but you're putting it in your local paper, you're going to use certain words and certain kinds of evidence and if you're going to do it in the New England Journal, you're going to write it very differently. And most people go into medicine because they want to make the world a better place and they want to help patients. And I think this gives them a way to do it at a time where they're feeling, you know, like, where's my role and what am I? And I'm seeing all this stuff and they're just filling up with it. Uh, when we did the resident course the first time, we really, first they didn't know they were going to have to write. They thought they were just learning about advocacy, so they were shocked and most were horrified. Um, but they all survived and came to love it and they just had stuff pouring out of them. Um, so I think it really fulfills a need, but for us, culturally, we didn't have a lot of other options, and then it's my interest um, that we tell our stories better. I feel like some of the debates and, and misunderstanding is because we're not present. It's a bit like what happened in the 90s with the HMOs. You know, Things changed a lot, and doctors said, well, this is outrageous, but they hadn't been in part of the conversations that had led to the change, and we are clearly getting much better at that. But I think if we have skills to do something, it's going to be a whole lot easier to do it. You know, that sometimes you want to do it and you just simply don't know how or where. And my thought is that we should all have some basic public medical communication skills. And as with many things in medicine, some people will then further specialize in it. But we all need to know ethics and we all need to understand uh, something about how research studies are designed. It doesn't mean we'll ever be doing that work but we need to understand this way of communicating effectively. And, and there is a huge cross, I think I didn't answer the first part of your question in back about how it goes into my practice. I, I do think the more we can learn to communicate effectively in any context, the more we can communicate effectively in other contexts. Uh, so it helps us um, and it helps within the profession and with patients uh, as well. And people seem to respond to it. I mean, it's been very elective and there are way more people interested than we can manage at this point. 
I've seen your name for years, yeah, yes. Yeah, they weren't buying that in San Francisco. It's, so. it's So the, I don't know if that you're capturing all this, but I, I can't do it justice, but sort of the notion of uh, public medical communication as a competence and, and then a question about how do we deal with it in practice or what happens when your patients read your work. Uh, well, mostly I was in small literary journals or medical journals, so they didn't read my work and the book's been out less than a month uh, and my New York Times piece was three days ago. So, so far I haven't had to deal with that. Uh, <laughs> this is also fiction, and although I feel it's, it's true and some of these individual things did happen, one of the great advantages of fiction is both that you can tell the story in the best way to get at what's most important about it, not hindered uh, so much by the specific events, but getting at the meaning of those events, but that also protects the patients. No one should be able to recognize him or herself. They can be vastly transformed in the fiction. Uh, in nonfiction, it's a little more difficult, and actually this is a huge issue. People, uh, doctors and trainees, trainees more so because there's a generational difference, are getting into huge trouble for putting things on the internet, on Facebook, uh, writing things up without adequately protecting patients. And it's a challenge at any number of levels because we need to protect patients first and foremost, but I think this generational notions of what is public and what isn't, um, I think we're gonna have to grapple with that. It may not be enough to just say that's not okay because if the culture is changing, then we need to make rules that are okay for the next generation, but also protect patients, and the old rules may not be adequate at this point in history. But I do think another reason to teach public medical communication is not only so that when people get out there, they are accurately representing uh, science, because you're right, people in labs are making videos to get funding for their work. They're trying to explain it, because if you do a really great study and nobody understands it, it's not getting out into the world. So we all need to be able to communicate more effectively, but I think if we do this training, we can also come to more of a 
uh, community consensus on what the standards are to protect patients while we're doing that important work of talking with them. So, yeah, definitely, because you can give people the skills and that doesn't guarantee that they'll use it in a way you might find ethically or professionally responsible. But that's true of everything we teach everyone. Um, I, I think more and more people are entering the mass arena, mostly through blogs. There are increasing numbers of blogs, some of which have you know tens or hundreds of thousands of daily views. And so it may be that more in the digital for forum we're communicating with people and it's coming out of the academic small, small world. And I think that's good uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we are there on the front lines so we can speak to what it's like as a provider. But I also think we're on the front lines witnessing the experiences of patients, many of whom cannot speak for themselves. And so if we have the abilities and the interests to speak for those patients, then we're adding another really important voice into the discussion. And then the other reason has to do with the changes in, in how we communicate in recent years. So communication used to be, you know, I tell you. It was like teaching. I teach you and you sit there and whatever happens, happens. And it's kind of a black box. And, and media was a bit like that. You know, you got your paper, you read it. If you hated something, you could swear at your kitchen table, but nobody was going to hear you. Whereas now people comment, and particularly people under 30 or 35, they expect to interact with everything they learn and with the other people learning it. And so larger conversations and discussions about health, healthcare, and everything else are becoming the norm. And I don't I think we will lose the ability to complain about any of the outcomes if we don't participate in those conversations. So we need to learn how to do that responsibly. Uh, it's sort of like if you don't vote, are you really going to complain about the city government? Uh, I, I think we need to step up and, and join this larger conversation as partners in the same way we've become partners in the clinic. We need to be partners in discussing really important issues in health and medicine. Thank you.